James chapter 1 James chapter 1 I'll read the whole chapter and then we'll consider from verse 26 to 27 James chapter 1 James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its, flowers, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion 
is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Uh, once again, let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its great encouragement, great warnings and rebukes and exhortation. Indeed, as we have sung, it is the chart and the compass that enables us to navigate through the storms of life. Help us this morning as we consider the end of this first chapter that you'll bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray that you'll strengthen me to be faithful to this scripture and help my hearers to be faithful in, uh, in listening and submitting to your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've looked at the first 25 verses of the first chapter of James. And um, we've looked at mainly three themes that um, come out very clearly. The first, uh, uh, from verse 2 to verse 12, is the theme of trials. And then from verse 13 to 16 is the theme of temptation. And then from verse 17 to the end, uh, we're seeing the theme of the word of God. And James has been writing to believers and he's telling them how they will know their believers based on their response to temptations in their life, to trials in their life, to the word of God. We come to verse 26 this morning. I'll read again verse 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is suggesting here in verse 26 that there are many people who think that they are religious. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious, and truly, if you ask many people if they are religious, they'll agree and say, yes, I'm religious. And many will declare they are religious based on their religious practices. They go to church, for example, they read the word of God, they help the poor, they engage in many external practices. And there's nothing wrong with engaging in religious external practices as we are doing right, right now. A religious thing is any kind of practice intended to serve the Lord. It is not a positive word, it is not a negative word. It can be used for any religious practice. It's actually possible to think that you're religious, but if your actions are not consistent with what you say, we are told here that you're deceiving your heart, you're deceiving yourself. Some people do not like the term religious. They say Christianity 
is not a religion, but a relationship. There's an extent in which they are right, but, but that is a false dichotomy of what Christianity is. Christianity is both a religion and a relationship with Christ. It's a religion because we are involved with many religious practices, like the Lord's table, like baptism, like the preaching of God's word. So the distinction here is not between a religion and a relationship. The distinction is between a true religion and a false religion. As you look at these verses this morning, I want to preface my preaching by saying that James is not exhaustively defining to us what true religion is. He's making a point here that true religion manifests itself with concrete actions. If you've truly been born of God's spirit, you will bear the fruit of righteousness. But if there's no fruit, your profession of faith is worthless. You're self-deceived. And, and this is a theme that we see throughout this book of James. James is saying there's a kind of religious practice that is empty, that is worthless, that is powerless, that is vain, that is lacking in proof. And, and the word worthless is, is really, if I could say, a sad word. Because if, if someone was to say you are a worthless person, it means that wewe ni bure, like hakuna mtu hapo. And the same word is, refer, is, is used to define what this false religion is. It is worthless. It has the idea of the Old Testament, people worshipping idols, people making graven image to worship God. You see, they'll go to worship a graven image and they'll come out and the graven image remains an image. It doesn't change. Their life is never transformed. Their life is just the same. This is the kind of religion that is utterly worthless. We're talking here about a group of people who do many religious things but with no eternal value. It is a complete waste of time, of energy, of resources. And could this be true of you? And then we'll see verse 27. Verse 26, he contrasts to us what worthless religion is. And then verse 27, he defines to us what true religion is. He says that true religion is pure and undefiled. Uh, these terms are synonymous with each other. It means clean, without stain, in the moral sense. So there's a kind of religious practice before God which pleases the Lord, which is a good thing, honoring to Him. And so we'll see how we will know whether we what we're engaged in is truly a pure and undefiled religion. How do we know we engage in, even this morning as we worship the Lord, whether our worship is acceptable before him. Is it a complete waste of time and energy and resources? Because, brethren, the world is full, filled with people who are engaged this morning with worthless religious practice. 
the world is full of deceived people. Pastors will stand up in the pulpit and preach all that is worthless. And you can imagine all the resources that go into glamorizing the church. All the time wasted, all the practice of music and the rehearsals that people do. And all is vain. All the ashes that serve and God says it is worthless before my eyes. So the question for you this morning is how do I know what true religious practice is? How do I know what genuine thing is? Because it is very easy, I included in this category, to be deceived. Is it possible that what you're doing this morning is a complete waste of time? So James gives us three evidences that show whether we are true Christians. It doesn't mean that it's only these three. It doesn't mean that if you do these three things, you're a Christian. That is not what it says. He's saying, if you think what you're doing before God lacks these three things, you should think again. God says, if you're doing religious practices and these three things are lacking, it is worthless. So it will be important for us this morning to know these three things because none of us wants to go through life and waste his whole life and energy and time and resources for nothing. So these three things, I've titled the sermon, Evidence of True Religion. Evidence of True Religion. And the first evidence of true religion is the practical control of your tongue. Practical control of your tongue, that we see in verse 26. The second evidence of true religion is compassionate care to the needy. So the second evidence of true religion is compassionate care for the needy or to the needy. That we see in verse 27. And then the third evidence of true religion is keeping yourself unstained from the world. That we see in verse 27 at the end. So the first thing, true Christianity is evidenced by practical control of the tongue. Verse 26, I read again, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So true Christianity is evidenced here, verse 26, by self-control. A genuine Christian will control his speech as a bridle controls a horse. I looked up the definition of a bridle. And it says, a bridle is a piece of equipment used to direct a horse. Uh, Oxford uh, English Dictionary describes it as, it it includes both the the headstall that holds a bit that goes into the mouth of a horse and the reins that are attached to the bit. So it's used to curb and control a horse. If you want the horse to go to the right, you pull to the right. If you want the horse to go to the left, you pull to the left. If you want the horse to stand, you pull uh, both sides. So James is using here an imagery that if you want to control a horse, you put a bridle or a bridle on its head so that the horse will do whatever you want it to do. 
our speech must be under control just as the rider of a horse controls the horse so that the horse goes wherever it wants to go the same case we should have that self-control to exercise control of our speech so as the bridle holds the horse in check true christianity is evidenced by a tongue in check true christianity will be evidenced by the ability of one to control their speech we're not saying that your ability to control your tongue makes you a christian but your ability to control your tongue proves that you're a christian how am i able to control my tongue james says in in verse 17 that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change so we're able to control our tongue first because god is good that in verse 18 he has brought us forth by the word of truth what has god done there in verse 18 we saw there that we have experienced a second birth you're born into the family of god you've come to jesus christ repented of your sins and believe in the lord jesus christ believe what he has done for you on the cross so you experience a work in your heart and how do you know you have a true saving faith that supernatural work that god has done in your heart the holy spirit who dwells in you gives you the second birth and the same holy spirit enables you to control your tongue so if your tongue is not held in check then it is questionable because you know that one of the fruit of the holy spirit is what self-control if there's no self-control evidence in your life you'll have to question whether you have the holy spirit in you so you could go through many religious practices you could be a deacon you could be an elder you could be a missionary but james says if you're not able to control your tongue your christianity is suspect because the tongue is like a little window that opens up what is really in your heart you see you can dress well you can conduct yourself in a very dignified way but wait until you open your mouth to speak and people will find out who you really are the tongue shows what is really going on inside so that is the first evidence of genuine christianity we are not saying you learn to control your tongue and then you become a christian james is saying here you become a christian first by repenting of your sins and believing in the lord jesus christ and the power that is in you the power that has saved you will enable you to keep your tongue in check you may wonder why the tongue because the, the, the tongue really reveals our heart out of the abundance of the heart christ says the mouth speaks and 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 james also says that the tongue is one of the most difficult things to control if you look at james chapter 3 3 verse 5 he says so also the tongue is a small member yet it boasts of great things how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire and the tongue is like is a fire a world of unrighteousness the tongue is set among our members 
staining the whole body, setting on fire the whole course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It could go on and on, but you see there the vivid picture painted to us of the tongue. It is shocking. What a great damage the tongue can do. It is poisonous. He says that a deadly poison. And he says it is a restless evil. It does not rest. Some of us, some of you, maybe you are told hurtful things while you are young. And those things, things continue to haunt you even today. Things maybe you are told by your teachers, by your parents, by your fellow students. Maybe you are given nicknames. Maybe they were mocking you, they were ridiculing you. You see, words can be cruel, words can stick. You see, people make up so many kind of excuses for failing to control their tongue. People may say, I, I just tell it the way I see it. People say, I speak my mind. That is the way I am. You see, there's a place for frank, candid discussion. But there's no place in Christianity to speak foolishly. If you're not in control of your tongue, you see, your tongue is in control of you. Consider how you use your tongue at home, in school. Consider how you use your tongue against fellow brethren, fellow siblings. And some things, brethren, do not need to be said. If, if someone is in debt, for example, why should you go around telling people? Of what necessity, for example, should you tell people that this person, or if someone embarrasses themselves? So you see, some things do not need to be told. So do we talk back to our parents when they tell us something to do? Do we talk back to our spouses in a way that is dishonoring? Do you say things that are false, things that are hurtful, things that are wrong? You see, do you have a reputation for failing to control your tongue? Do people keep shut when you're in their presence because they know that whatever they say will spread like wildfire? Or do people confide in you knowing that you can be trusted, you're trustworthy? So there's none of us who passes this test as we are told there even in James chapter 3. There's none of us who is perfect in controlling their tongue. You see, Christianity is so powerful that it changes the way we talk. So do we bridle our tongue? Can we say this is one of the marks that proves that, that I'm a Christian? Notice again here in verse 26 that James brings again the issue of deception. If you look at verse 8 of the same chapter, verse 8 of James chapter 1, there's an issue of deception there, talking about this double-minded man, this double-souled man, a person 
looking at two directions at the same point at the same time a person who cannot make a decision cannot trust god this person is unstable in all, in all his ways this person is deceived he is inconsistent and is deceived in his heart verse 13 again says that when we say that that, that god is god has tempted us he tells us that god cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one so the idea there also is we are warned against deceiving ourselves by our own sins and blaming god for our sins and then in verse 22 we look at this we looked at this last week he warns us that if we hear the word of god be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself verse 22 he warns us here that if we hear the word of god and do not practice what it says we are deceiving ourselves if we hear the word of god and forget we are deceiving ourselves so what is the solution to this deception we saw that last week it is looking intently to the perfect law of god being grounded in the word the way you'll not be deceived is knowing the word of god not superficially but in depth examining ourselves and letting the word of god expose our sin and continually repenting of those sins so if you think if you think your religion allows you to speak the way you want james says here that you're deceived you deceive yourself today some churches you'll see a pastor standing on the pulpit making vulgar jokes and they think this is a way to connect with the people this is a way to entertain people truly they are deceiving themselves they are not able to bridle their tongue that is self-defiling that is poisonous to the people and james says it is a worthless religion james is not calling us here to perfectionism because surely we all sin with our tongue but because we are convinced by the perfect love of god we are convicted of our sins and we confess our sins and we find forgiveness in christ so if you're truly a child of god you should be able to hear the word of god and do it if you sin with your tongue you repent you hold the mirror of god's word so that you're able to examine yourself according to god's word according to true religion and then secondly another evidence of true religion is compassionate care to the needy verse 27 verse 27 religion that is pure and undefiled before god the father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world If you have to make sure that your religion is acceptable before God, you should be able to manifest a concern for the needy, for the poor, for the orphans and the widows. What, what is this all about? All of us are selfish and self-centered people. The number one person that you care about is yourself. And you can know that uh, if if you've been in a car that uh, maybe the driver was <laughs> was driving recklessly, and there was you you almost involved in an accident. The first person 
you will care about is yourself the first person that the, the first person that um, you seek to protect is yourself you're not even thinking about the person sitting next to you that shows that we are self-centered people that in a split moment your concern is not about others but yourself you see that is our natural inclination is to look after ourselves so does it say here that true religion is visiting other members of TRBC members that you have great affinity to members that you love no the command here for example if we struggle even to visit and to care other brethren uh, within our midst uh, then this will be of much difficulty because orphans and widows are not ordinary people they're the most destitute groups of people in ancient times you see in the ancient times an orphan did not have sorry a widow who did not have sons had a very rough time they found difficulty securing a job they found difficulty gaining inheritance orphans on the other hands they had no parents and no one to take care of them and this is difficult because when you're helping orphans and widows you're not expecting anything back from them when you're helping widows and orphans it is difficult because you're not expecting anything back from them because they have nothing and so they are the most helpless people an orphan had no defense had no provision it was difficult for a family to survive even in such cases and so an orphan and a widow were at the mercy of others if you look at um second kings chapter 4 you could quickly turn there second kings chapter 4 second kings chapter 4 verse verse 1 this is elisha and the widow um bible says now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to elisha your servant my husband is dead and you know that your servant feared the lord but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves so this woman was an orphan she was in debt and notice how vulnerable she was because the 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 credit had come to take her two sons you see fallen men even in that time took advantage of the vulnerable in exodus chapter 22 verse 22 you don't need to turn there exodus chapter 22 verse 22 god commands that you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child you see god judges the nation of israel not based not because they did not give offerings and sacrifices to God 
but because they oppressed the vulnerable in the society. And James says this is not different in the new, in the new covenant. You see in Acts chapter 6, if you could turn there, In Acts chapter 6 verse 1 it says now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution so there were a large number of widows who needed to be taken care of and here James is telling us that true Christianity means that you're giving people who have no ability to give you back, to reach out to orphans and widows. So the idea here is, as Christ has chosen to love us, we who are unlovable, unworthy, we too should be willing to love those who are unlovable, those who are destitute, those who probably will not love you back, So James does not want us to simply feel pity for them. He says here, true religion visits the poor and the widows in their affliction. The word visit there is the word we get the word bishop from. A bishop is an overseer, a pastor. And it's basically the same word. So what does it mean to visit? It means to go and see someone with a helpful intention. Going with an intention to help them. To find out of their needs and their interests to find out their infliction their affliction their physical affliction it could be sickness it could be hunger it could be malnutrition so religion before god the father here is deliberate notice also he says in james chapter chapter one he says that religion that is pure and defiled before god the father and this is somewhat deliberate because God refers to himself in the Old Testament as the father to the fatherless, the protector of widows. James is incorporating here the idea of fatherhood by saying that God is our father. In, in verse 5 of James chapter 1, he says that God, who is our father, gives generously to all without reproach. In verse 18, he says, that by his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So God has birthed us. And so God takes this special interest and then in verse 17, he says, God is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So the idea here of fatherhood shows that God is, has special interest in the poor, in the needy, in the orphans. And so in the same way, God takes special interest to those who are destitute. We too ought to imitate our father. Just like a child imitates his father, we too ought to imitate God in showing special care to those who are in need. So, we know that which is acceptable in the sight of God is to meet the needs of the orphans, 
and the widows to see that they are taken care of, to find out what is going on in their life. That is the true mark of conversion. It's also important to remember here that orphans are not necessarily children who have lost their parents. But someone can also be an orphan through abandonment. So the idea here of widows and orphans can, is, is a bit general and, and wide. It can refer to those who, who suffer. It may apply to those who are suffering because of an, unemployment, those who are sick, those who are going through difficult trials. You ask yourself, how can I help them? How can I visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction? And we need to consider this seriously so that we are not only hearers of God's word, but also we are doers. And one way could be providing meals for them. One way could be visiting them. Christ says, the world will know that we are his disciples if we love one another. You may say, this is not natural. It's true, it's not natural. Because you need the power of the Holy Spirit to enable you to do this. So genuine Christianity is evidenced by practical control of your tongue, compassionate care to the needy, and then thirdly, keeping yourself unstained from the world. At the end there it says, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You may think, I don't drink alcohol, I don't smoke, I should be a very moral person, I should be a person who is unstained, who is separated from the world. What does this mean here? The world. The world there means the ungodly system, the lifestyle that characterizes a society that is around us. So this is an organized system, a pattern of thinking that is opposed to God. This is a worldview, a worldview that is hostile to God, a value system opposed to the perfect law of God. Uh, Christ tells his disciples in John chapter 15 verse 19, if you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And many times, the world will not force its worldview down our throat. Rather, its influence is, is, is rather subtle. It's rather unnoticeable. It's rather deceptive. You see a billboard, for example, that is product that is promoting a product that is immoral they haven't told you to engage in that immoral act but the very fact that they are promoting that product it could be alcohol for example but slowly but slowly it permeates into your mind it is a subtle message it is not visible it is silent it is in the air we breathe, and often we don't notice it. We don't ingest it deliberately. So every time you watch a movie, or you talk to someone, or you read a book, 
that is worldly, you're slowly being influenced to buy into their way of thinking. You may not realize it, you may not think that you're doing it, but you are. And, and one of the strategies even by the LGBTQ movement is, is to saturate our culture with so much images that, that will get used to it. So you have in the social media, in the TV, in the movies, even the society, so, so, so that the society is desensitized. It becomes normal for people to see such things. Things so that things that disgusted the previous generation, probably in the next generation to come, it will be normal. They'll be conformed to the value system of the world. And we need to be careful as Christians not to be stained by the world. What happened when we were saved? The Lord reached out to us and pulled us out from the world. And we ought not to be affected by the way the world thinks. I don't mean that you live in isolation. James is not saying that. James is not saying that you cannot have unbelieving friends. James is saying here that we should not be influenced by the ungodly world. The ungodly world lives for temporary pleasure. They live for the now, they live for, for self. So these are the three things we ought to genuinely examine ourselves if we truly call ourselves Christians. There are marks that should define who a Christian is. If these things are not real in your life, go before the Lord in hopelessness and ask the Lord to change you. If you have not repented of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, cry to him. Because if you try by your effort to do these things, to, br to bridle your tongue, for example, to, be com to show compassionate care, to, to, to keep yourself unstained from the world, you can do it externally. But you see, the part that ought to be changed is our soul, is our heart. You see, the sin is inside. James says that we are lured and enticed by our own desire. So sin is in the outside, it's not external. So to, be, to avoid being stung by the world, we need to exercise self-control from the point of our soul. So it's not enough for us to do external things. It's not enough for us to do these things for people to see. We must guard our hearts by filling ourselves with the truth. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 to 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 to 6. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 to 6, I'll read. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We're given here the solution and where the battle really is. The battle is not 
external. The battle is in the mind. We are able to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God if we know the word of God, if the word of God is richly dwelling in us. So for us to practice self-control, we must be saturated with the word of God. Self-control enables us to eat and not be gluttonous. Self-control enables us to enjoy movies and entertainment without becoming a love of pleasure. We're able to enjoy nice things without becoming a love of greed. We're able to eat and drink and do everything else for the glory of God if we have self-control. So God has called you to pursue a religion really that is pure and true. A religion that is marked by control of speech, keeping yourself unstained from the world, compassionate care to the needy. And all, all that the Lord calls us to do this morning has already been done by Christ. You can control your words because God has already brought you forth by the word of truth. Verse 18 says that. You can give to the orphans and the widows because God has given you the most precious gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has given you adoption as a son and everything else that pertains to life and godliness as a Christian. So you're able to keep yourself unstained from the world because Christ prays for you. He lives to intercede for you. He tells his disciples in John chapter 17 verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they, may, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Amen. Yeah.